and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Delva Rohash and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friends Giselle Donnelly, I also work at AEI, and Yulia Zoja with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities. On our podcast we talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Brady Afric, a colleague here at AEI and a well-renowned analyst of the war in Ukraine. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating and reviewing us on every podcast, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Brady, um, I would like to start on a somewhat unconventional note, namely uh, by asking you about your background, professionally and academically speaking. You joined AEI to work on media stuff, connecting scholars and reporters, keeping track of our media appearances. And yet, as the war in Ukraine started, you established yourself as an independent voice, analyzing um, open source data, particularly uh, satellite imagery. And you become a you know, sought after resource for reporters in your in your own right. So, so how did you, you know, find that niche, what sort of you know, background did you, did you have to sort of stumble upon this opportunity and uh, you know, what are you know, some of the lessons that, that our listeners could, could draw from, from your experience? Well, thank you so much for having me on. It's, uh, it's very exciting to join the show. I'm obviously uh, a long-time listener. Um, to talk a little bit about my background, I first kind of became interested in foreign policy and computer science and kind of the intersection between tech and foreign policy in college. And I studied that. And when I graduated, I was looking for ways to kind of apply that knowledge and that intersection in a way where I could also continue learning a lot. And that naturally led me to media where I'd be promoting uh, the work of experts. And I could get to delve into their work, uh, learn about it, and find out how I can best convey it to a layman. And when the invasion of Ukraine happened, the full-scale invasion, I should say, I really wanted to help in some way. I think a lot of us had similar feelings of uh, being struck by the wrongness of the invasion and wanting to try and push back on it in some way. And I began doing geolocations, which is basically using photos and videos and the clues within them to try and determine where they have been taken, when they were taken, and that can help everyone from war crimes investigators to soldiers trying to plan uh, their next move. And so when I began doing that, I noticed that there was a lot of room for geolocation that was understandable to the layman and also responsibly done because there's obviously ethical considerations to be done or to be considered in terms of open source intelligence. And this was all kind of something I fell into and gradually began to do more of as the invasion progressed. And now I'm here. Brady, you've been particularly, uh, you know, become well known for your plotting of the growing and thickening Russian uh, defensive lines in the south part, well, actually all over the place, but in particular, uh, those of us who uh, follow you maniacally on Twitter, you know, have have counted uh, the increasing supply of red triangles that the uh, Ukrainian army is now trying to reduce. What 
Has that taught you about uh, the nature of Russian preparations over the, you know, since the winter up and up until now? And do you think that help explains uh, the pace and the nature of the Ukrainian counteroffensive? I definitely think it is a, a huge factor. And I think the construction of Russian fortifications dispels a little bit of the rumor that the Russian army doesn't learn at all. Uh, certainly, we've seen them be very slow to learn or not learn in some specific areas. But I think after the Ukrainian army was able to retake such significant ground in Kharkiv and Kherson Oblast, uh, the Russian military realized that they could lose significant amounts of territory rather quickly. And the result uh, was to construct these extensive fortification lines, which, as you mentioned, we're seeing Ukrainian forces work their way through now. And it was also an indication to me that they recognized where they might be lacking in quality, either in equipment or the skill of their forces, they could make up for it to some extent in quantity. And as a result, we've seen this very wide defensive net cast, particularly over southern Ukraine, but as you mentioned, uh, in the east as well. And it's been striking to me to see how quickly some of the optimism of Ukraine's counteroffensive has pivoted into a uh, realistic pragmatism of what might be necessary and what the U.S. should be continuing to provide. Um, and I think the fortifications have been a, a very pivotal role in helping people understand the Ukrainian military is working through some complex situations right now. If, if I may just push you, I mean, the sort of emotional roller coaster bit of this has been much more in the West than in Ukraine itself, which clearly had ample opportunity to understand what was going on on their front. So, I mean, it's worth sort of speculating as to why the realities of the war are to the spectator set, you know, and obviously you've been providing them with very precise and accurate information. I wonder why people didn't make the connection. I mean, like as Dalibor said in the intro, you've become uh, a go-to source for many reporters and so on and so forth. Maybe if I can j j just add to that, have you, have you been surprised by what seems to have surprised many people in the West, namely by the slow pace of the uh, of the Ukrainian uh, counteroffensive, or were you kind of anticipating that this would be a real slow sort of slugfest given given the density of Russia. This is probably what I anticipated but not what I had hoped for in the sense that I had hoped Russia would be less competent in where it distributed its forces in pushing significant amounts of forces up to the front line to try and bog down Ukrainian forces there. I didn't expect them to necessarily do that given the depth of the fortifications they had constructed. But it does, it does seem that they put a significant amount of effort into bolstering that first line of defense. So I would call this scenario that's playing out now the expected one, but not the optimistic one. And that being said, while Ukrainian forces are certainly uh, taking a, a measured pace, I do think it, it could have gone more poorly or could be going more poorly. Uh, I do see them making incremental progress and learning from battlefield mistakes rather quickly. Uh, so I am generally optimistic in their ability to succeed on a long enough timeline. 
I think it's just a question of if they're going to have the resources and space to do so. I want to challenge this for a bit um, in kind of the dummy way, <laughs> um, but I think we are. <laughs> we're all the, we're all potato heads here on this program. <laughs> well, no, exactly. We we should be doing better at that um, because we are all kind of presuming that everybody knows what these things look like um, um, that you've been looking at for one and a half years and that you're delivering to um, media internationally, but. I know that not all of our listeners and certainly not all the people that I'm talking to are actually looking at what they they keep hearing about fortifications being very strong, but they don't understand what it actually looks like. We had a few weeks ago a guest, um, the Adri, who is the founder of um, the Ukraine Defense Fund, and he explained in detail a part of it. Um, but I want to ask you, because you're also a native speaker, to try to put into words exactly what the fortifications um, look like, what the major challenges are um, when it comes, because it, it has um, the fortifications have different pa um, parts. It's the trenches, um, it's the uh, mines that we keep talking about. But but to explain to us dummies, um, sort of why has it come to this? How come? What are we talking about when we're talking about this delay of several months of the administration here in Washington? Um, and how could that have been prevented? What the challenge actually physically consists of? It's a very important thing, and I'm glad you brought that up because I do think the dots on a map can be a little abstract to many people. And what we're talking about on the ground is an extensive network of different types of fortifications, as you mentioned. Towards the front line, you'll often see these vast anti-tank or anti-vehicle ditches, which are basically what they sound like, very, very long, empty areas that can trap an armored vehicle trying to advance onto a Russian position. And you've also seen famously these dragon's teeth. They're concrete pyramids, uh, sometimes connected by wire, and similar to the ditches, they're meant to slow down or even stop advancing infantry and armor. And then you also see trenches for personnel where you might have machine gunners or folks defending a position with anti-tank guided missiles. And finally, as you mentioned, you'll have extensive landmines. And all of these combine to make it very, very difficult to progress safely through an open area, particularly in Ukraine's south, where there's a lot of farmland and relatively more flat space when compared to the east. And fortifications don't necessarily have to completely stop an adversary to be effective, because if they can just slow them down to a significant degree, now you've opened up that attacking force to artillery, to missiles, and to all other sorts of things. So it's that kind of grinding, bogged down uh, environment that Ukrainian forces are trying to push through. And even with highly specialized equipment, mine clearing equipment, to do it safely, it can take uh, a significant amount of time. To answer your second question about what the West maybe could have done, this is you know where we get into to more of a debate because there's questions of when uh, Ukrainian forces were ready to be trained on certain platforms, how quickly we could have distributed them here or there. But I am of the perspective that we should have, as Fred Kagan has described, become convinced on day one that we need to completely transition the Ukrainian military to Western kit. 
because obviously Russia isn't going to be selling them Soviet kit anymore, and there's a very limited amount of that in Eastern Europe. So whether it was Western mine clearing vehicles, Western tanks that would allow them to put more pressure on Russian forces and not allow them to dig in along the front line, or cluster munitions as we ended up providing that would again put pressure on Russian forces uh, trying to dig in. So I think providing a lot of that sooner and not being, again, as AEI's Fred Kaken describes, uh, a weapon system short and a day late uh, would have been very helpful to the Ukrainian army in how quickly they could have gotten things going. I want to follow up straight on that, if I may, and ask you about um, weapons and how we could have responded, basically dig in a bit and ask you to focus on two things that you just talked about. On the one hand, it's cluster munitions. Um, there's been a very emotional debate, you must have followed it as well, about whether we're principally in favor, principally against countries next to Russia, have not banned them. That's to me the most important thing because Russia has been using them extensively, but nobody really explains why they are useful in the fortifications that Ukraine is now um, uh, is now facing uh, in relationship to Russia and why Ukraine has been asking for a long time until we actually provided them. So that's one, the cluster munitions, um, and then the mine sweeping equipment, because Andre from the defense fund that I just mentioned, the episode, talked about that and in a kind of modest Ukrainian way said, well, the government should have asked for them. But you could also argue the Biden administration should have foreseen, including with satellite images that um, open source intelligence um, is e uh, easy to provide, that this would have been needed. So can you help us make sense of the two? Why either, why either are needed and why they are delayed, what the logic is? Uh, speaking about the cluster munitions, as you mentioned, there was significant humanitarian concerns. Um, for those who may not know, cluster munitions, when they're fired, they release sub-munitions, and not all of these munitions detonate every time, meaning parties afterwards would have to go through and clear these areas of undetonated munitions. Now, Ukraine was asking for them for several reasons. Uh, first of all, they contend that they were going to have to clear many of these areas anyway, because they were already saturated with Russian mines. And also, Ukrainian forces were running low on the artillery ammunition they needed. And cluster munitions were in ample supply from the United States, and this became a way to supplement their need for shells, because the quote-unquote normal ammunition, or the mo more common ammunition, wasn't uh, as available. In terms of their usefulness clearing fortifications, we've seen these be used quite recently uh, outside the town of Robotin, where cluster munitions have been used to clear tree lines uh, that have entrenched Russian positions. This allows not only Ukrainian uh, artillery crews to spot them more easily, but then can allow infantry to potentially clear the space more easily when they arrive. I think it was difficult for Western governments and Ukraine's allies to really understand until the counteroffensive began the huge scale at which Russia was laying mines. I think there was a top line recognition of it, but it wasn't until we saw, frankly, Western vehicles like Bradley's and Leopard's advancing and running into many of these mines and surviving in many cases and protecting the crew within but certainly being bogged down and slowed in many ways that it became apparent 
it was going to become very important for Ukrainian forces to have an extreme ability to clear mines. And we have seen the West provide a lot of technology to do so. There's uh, leopard mine clearing vehicles that basically have attachments on the front of their tanks and they can plow through minefields. There's a weapon system that fires what essentially amounts to an explosive cord into a minefield. That cord then detonates, detonating the mines around it, creating a path for Ukrainian forces. The technology does exist to clear minefields. It's just slow, uh, imperfect, and in short supply. And it's something Western governments should really keep in mind when they're determining what aid to give. And the last point I'll make is that while it can be difficult to clear a lot of these defensive lines, in some cases they can be starved of supplies. And that's a key reason why we've seen Ukraine focus on hitting railway bridges, uh, transport hubs, and places where there's accumulation of Russian military equipment. I think an important part of the current conundrum derives from mistakes made a year ago or more, or nine months or so uh, in the wake of uh, Ukraine's successful counteroffensives of last year. And the failure, A, to credit the Russians with the ability to take derived lessons, you know, in their sort of unique way uh, from what they just experienced. And we just sort of sat there and watched them slowly build and lay out and thicken these defenses. It, it, I mean, the, the fact that the Russians have a ton of mines uh, is, is not headline news, really. But, it, you know, it, it took them six, eight months to do what they have done. They had to bring up large, large amounts of material and munitions, even uh, from Crimea and even from elsewhere in uh, Russia to be able so we with the Ukrainians did not have the capability and we did not give them the capability to disrupt the Russian setting of their defenses which we certainly that would have been easy if uh, you know if like ATACMs and other longer range munitions had been supplied then we would not I don't believe be facing the same uh, or the Ukrainians would not be facing defenses of the same density and uh, lethality that they uh, that they're currently picking their way through. I mean, the ways in which this war has taken us by surprise and continues to take us by surprise, it, it has got to be one of the main themes of the war. And th this, you know. The story of this counteroffensive is very much a part of that. So I'm sorry there was no question. Don't you agree with me? <laughs> well, quickly, I'll just say I, I do fear that Ukraine's allies almost learned the wrong lesson from their successful counteroffensives in that we believed they could have this extreme success with at a low price, relatively yeah. Yeah. less support. Yeah. Exactly. And we didn't anticipate there would be learning on the other side when, of course, that should have been. I remember um, hearing Walter Russell Mead uh, sometime in July, August last year, say something along the lines of, uh, of, of there being a very common historic pattern in Russian-led wars that they tend to start truly disastrously for Russia and then the Russians do get better and so he warned us against 
are kind of extrapolating from 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 the early setbacks and and so, so as you said it looks like the russians have learned something and, and i have to wonder whether the west is learning as well so so another data point to add to, to what you just mentioned this is, is the fact that uh nobody seems to be in a rush to provide ukraine with uh with fighter jets as per the um, washington post story from from this morning which says that the training of the six Ukrainian pilots will take months and months into well into uh, next year. Uh, when we spoke with with Andrei Liskovich on the book, the, the episode that the Dura alluded to, uh, he mentioned having conversations with U.S. experts about the situation that Ukraine is facing in in the south with these fortifications and systems of trenches, and he asked them what would you know the u.s military do in similar circumstances and, and their answer was very straightforward the u.s would just bomb the hell out of the place before then sending in either artillery and infantry and, and so on and so forth ukrainians just don't have that luxury and it looks like nobody in the west is in the rush to to provide them with this with this capability so so really are we learning anything or not uh it's an excellent question I think we are. It's just a question of are we doing so at a pace that will matter. I've seen you know reports of us increasing artillery shell production and things like that, but people are throwing around numbers years from now in terms of reaching capacities that would be particularly useful for Ukraine. And similarly with the the F-16 conundrum, you're completely correct in that. You know, is the F-16 the most perfect platform for Ukraine? Maybe not, but it's better than no plane. And the idea that we've gone from, oh, they don't need it to, it would be helpful, but we can't train them to, okay, now we can do it, but it's taking a while, seems to be a repeated pattern across weapon systems and support for Ukraine. And I think we're seeing the cost now where they're being compelled to undertake a counteroffensive that, as you described, no Western military would ever do without air power. And they're having their allies, uh, you know, pester them that it's it's taking too long. I mean, if I, know I sound like a cranky old person, but the U.S. military is still suffering from a desert storm hangover. I can remember very vivid. We, they did training in breaching trench lines because and they devoted a whole U.S. divisions worth of forces to just this and we're talking about breaching Iraqi trench lines or Iraqi defenses at the very end of their defensive positions in the extreme uh, western desert on the border between Saudi Arabia and uh, so I mean it was like tissue paper first of all compared to the Russian defenses the Iraqis were either bulldozed and smothered in their trenches or came out and surrendered prior to it. They were subject to six weeks of constant air bombardment ahead of time. And they were, when they were finally attacked by, you know, the overall force of that left hook had 1,000 Abrams tanks, another couple hundred British Challenger tanks, all kinds of other, you know, uh, equipment and systems is a massive, like a hundred thousand soldier force, and now, and and that's our image of what 
conducting a breach of prepared defenses is supposed to be like, which is, you know, is good if you can do it, but all the circumstances that, that went into that success are pretty much absent in the current case. The defenders are much more committed. The defenses themselves are much better. Uh, the technological advantage and the numerical advantage that U.S. forces enjoyed, the Ukrainians do not enjoy. Uh, you know, we prepared for it down to every jot and tittle again and again and again in the months prior to the attack. It's just, and then we scratch our heads and ask ourselves, how come the Ukrainians aren't repeating this? And, and that gets into, are we learning in two ways? Are we learning not only in the support we need to provide and how we might need to change that based on the battlefield in Ukraine? And also, are we learning for our own military uh, in terms of what it would actually look like should we ever need to compete with a similar adversary? And I don't know the answer to the latter question. Uh, well, uh, so again, you've pushed my button here. There have been stories from Ukrainian soldiers who are being trained in Germany and elsewhere in Western Europe, and they say as basic soldier skills, it's fine. We, you know, we come away knowing how to use and clean our weapons and stuff like that. But they, when it comes to trench clearing, they ridicule the training that they're getting. The, the Americans shows how to clear, you know, a trench that's one hole and it's ten feet long. Um, so no, I, I, I'm not sure. You know, whether we're the training that we're giving to the Ukrainian army is the right kind of training is is uncertain. A really good question, and I'm not sure that we know what we're doing wrong exactly. Especially because there could be scenarios where, uh, you know, a Ukrainian service member goes for training in the West and they've had more combat experience than Th that's our, we've we've crossed that threshold yeah. some time ago, I think. You know, this reminds me of this conversation of the same principle. I think Brady's also alluding to a couple of times that we see throughout this war. And I don't mean 2022. I mean 2014. In the first few days, in the first few years, independent of administration, we didn't give them javelins because we feared that the Russians could get the technology. And now we're probably not giving them training, either because we don't know better or because we fear that, <laughs> that the Russians might be learning from that um, on the battlefield. So it's, um, we're going back to what Fred Kagan was saying and, and Brady was quoting, we need to have switched a long time ago. But let me ask you something else that I think um, that I'm interested in and I think uh, um, others are too. You've, you have a unique perspective, kind of like a bird's eye um, in open source intelligence looking at this war through a very visual perspective. So I'm going to ask you the question that, of course, everyone is asking everyone, um, but I'd be very curious to hear it from exactly that visual perspective. With the progress that you've seen on the Russian side through the winter, and now the pace that you're looking at through the spring and summer, what are you expecting in terms of worst outcomes, but also best outcomes in the months to come? What are you, What is possible from a visual perspective, so to speak, um, looking into the end of the summer and into fall? Uh, I'll start on the pessimistic note, which is the worst case. Um, I think the worst case could be that we either see Ukrainian gains stagnate or even roll back in some areas. 
we've seen Russian forces begin to put pressure on Ukrainian lines in the northeastern part of the country. Uh, and Ukraine is very well attuned to that and is, is defending well. But should anything negative happen there or in the south, uh, that could be perhaps the more negative path we could take. But on a more optimistic note, I think it is possible that because Russia has, very generally speaking, front-loaded so many of their forces close to the line in Ukraine's south, that a potential Ukrainian breakthrough could be very significant, and that it could cause problems for Russian forces maintaining the continuity of their defensive line and could force them to withdraw back to some of these secondary or third lines that they have set up. Um, of course, the problem is they've been given time to set up those second and third lines, so their ability to perform this elastic defense both on a local scale and on a large scale is probably the primary concern. Well, getting just making them have to move puts just the kind of pressure on the Russian command system that it's ill-designed to uh, respond to. Another positive note that I would say is that Ukraine has yet to commit much of its high-end force. So the Russians have to know that the big fist is still out there someplace. And, you know, w without knowing how to, you know, if there is a, a little crack in the defenses here, do we flood it with reserves and then weaken ourselves elsewhere? You know, Ukraine has shown itself very good at operational deception. So, uh, you know, I, I do think that there's there are several chapters to this summer offensive novella that we haven't yet been able to read. And the last quick note I'll say on this is I think there's outside wrinkles from, uh, you know, Ukraine's drone strikes uh, in Russia proper and long term missiles that might be supplied or might not and what role that could play on Russian logistics, because I could see maybe less so the drone strikes from a political perspective, but more so the uh, long-range strikes from a military perspective having a large effect. But only time will tell. Can I ask you a sort of open-ended question about the um, role of technology in this war? So clearly, um, you know, this is a war that's different from the previous ones, partly thanks to people like you and their use of open-source data and and information technology in a way that provides for a sort of continuous source of updates on what's happening. I don't think we've ever had you know, access to information of that quality in real time before. But also on the battlefield, we've seen, we are seeing drones, including drones inside of Russia. We are seeing uh, hypersonic missiles. We are seeing uh, jammers of GPS signals interfering with, with precision artillery. and. Uh, and, and so one has to wonder whether you know, this is a qualitatively different war from, from previous wars or not. There was a really interesting article in Foreign Affairs that came out yesterday on August 10th by Stephen Biddle from Columbia. We can link to it in the show notes, who argues that in spite of everything, this is in many ways still a very conventional war, one that would be recognizable to somebody from 78 years ago, war in which tanks, airplanes, conventional artillery and trenches are still playing, or mines are still playing a, a massively, massively important role. And if there have been changes, there have been kind of adaptive and evolutionary and, and happening at the margin rather than uh, 
you know, presenting as really sort of positively new form of warfare. I wonder if you have, you know, any thoughts on, on this subject. Yeah, from what I've seen, it's less so that new, t- as you described, it's less so that new technology is replacing uh, old technology or methods of warfare, but more so that it's being incorporated in addition to them. So artillery, of course, has been a thing for a very long time. And now, while it used to be planes p- providing very general spotting information, now we have drones. Uh, and similarly with the open source intelligence information space, um, you know, there was always rumors and photographs and uh, the American government had their spy technology. And now we've just seen that be added on to in a way that opens it up to more people. The drawback of this obviously is the signal to noise ratio of information has changed dramatically, where there's a lot of people not only duplicating good work, but putting out not so good work into the space that can complicate things or produce incorrect assessments and things like that. Actually, that makes a good question for you, Brittany. So how, when you're preparing, you know, one of your maps or, you know, how do you sift through the signal from the noise? The most important lesson that I've heard in OSINT uh, and indeed in all intelligence is before calling something abnormal, know what normal looks like. And it's been really valuable because uh, one anecdote is I've known researchers who have been mapping trenches like I have, and they've noticed these long divots that they look kind of older, and you know when, when were they created? And it turned out that they were trenches from World War II. So those are interesting to see, but not something I would want to include on my map. And another similar uh, incident occurred where there was a long, seemingly trench line, but it turned out to be they were digging for uh, a natural gas pipeline. So there are scenarios like that where it's really important to check the historical imagery and find what local reports you can find from on the ground. And if you're not sure, don't share. And that has been a kind of guidepost for me. The other side piece of this is even if you have information that you know is accurate, you have to determine is it safe and responsible to share this. Obviously, there have been folks who've asked me to map Ukrainian trench lines, which the answer is no. And there's been incidents where uh, I might have geolocated a piece of footage, but that footage was captured in an occupied town from someone's apartment. And of course, you don't want to post their location because you don't want to invite any kind of retribution. So both knowing what normal looks like and knowing what's okay to share and what's responsible to share are two of probably the most important lessons I've, I've tried to adhere to. And there is a lot of people who either deliberately or for clicks or for some other reason will just share anything and everything because they know it's inflammatory or sounds interesting. And it can be difficult when you see a post that is either untrue or misleading and it's some, you know, verified account with all kinds of engagement. And then the person correcting them below has only one like, that kind of thing. <laughs> so, so Twitter likes are actually a, a measure of uh, credibility, right? <laughs> uh, they're a measure of attention. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the world we are living in, Giselle. Um, Brady, thank you so much for, 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 for this education as a dear leader at the foreign policy department, AI likes to say. 
Well, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you for your work. It's been just, you know, I'm not the only one who is completely addicted to what, to your product, I'm sure. I appreciate that. Maybe you should start monetizing it. <laughs> well, yeah, now Twitter does payouts, I guess, for some creators. So maybe I'll do that and just send that to Ukraine. We'll see. Yeah, yeah you know, you just join an intelligence agency and, uh, or, you know, a consultancy and make the big money. <laughs> There you go. Um, your career sorted. From me, Nalbaraj. Me, Giselle Donnelly, and... Yulia Zosa. And Brady. Thank you for listening to these... And Brady. And Brady. Thank you for listening to the a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front. Uh, you can find more episodes and additional content on our website, ai.org on every podcast, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. You can follow us on what used to be Twitter, and is now called X. And you can also sign up for our fortnightly newsletter to receive more information from the Eastern Front. Again, if you enjoy this content, you can subscribe, and please consider rating and reviewing as it helps others find the program. Thank you, and goodbye.